Thank you very much. Gateway Church, I've heard about you, but I've never been here, so thanks for letting me crash the party today. It's fun to be with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, we're going to jump in. I'm going to show you some slides today, and we're going to walk through what I hope is some helpful and relevant content for you that are in the next generation, but also for you who are leading, parenting, coaching, teaching the emerging generation. Please hear me. I'm not a sage. I'm not a guru. I don't have all the answers. But boy, do I love digging into how do we best lead them so they can become the best version of themselves, really so they can stand on our shoulders and be taller than we are. That's my goal. So let me start with a story. My daughter, Bethany, I just mentioned, is 34 years old. Her first job after she graduated from college was to teach in a preschool. She loves children. And uh, she's a therapist now, but um, her first job was just with three- and four-year-old little kids. Well, one night she came to me and she goes, Dad, you won't believe what happened at the school today. I said, tell me. She said, well, Bera, one of the four-year-old little boys, was in the room and she was watching Bera, and he was picking up a book, a regular hardback book, and he was examining it like it was a foreign object. You know, he'd not seen a book before. And so Bethany said, I just watched him to see what he would do with it. And the next thing she saw him do made her chuckle. To the cover of the book, he started taking it with his index finger. He started stroking it like it was an iPad. What, what is wrong with this tablet, you know? And of course, she had to go over and explain, no, Bear, I'm so sorry. It's a book. It's really old-fashioned. You have to open it up to look at the pictures. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we have moved into an emerging generation that has migrated from the Gutenberg world to the Google world. Would you agree with that? Uh, so how do we lead a generation that's growing up in a different world than the one we grew up in? Sometimes I would think it's almost fundamentally different. I mean, we had our struggles, didn't we, when we were teens? But it's just a new day and a new struggle. And sometimes I think as parents, we overfunction to try to make up the difference. We're not just helicopter parents. We're Apache helicopter parents. You know what I mean? Just trying to overdo it. And then sometimes we underfunction going, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. God help, you know, that sort of thing. So I'd like to take the first few minutes of my time with you and answer the question, just who are these kids today? So the two youngest generations that make up the, um, the last 20, 25 years are Generation Z and Generation Alpha. So Gen Z would be uh, in middle school, high school, and college. Generation Alpha would be even younger than that. And they're so young, it's, our research has to be in pencil. You know, they're going to change their minds. Their favorite movie may not be Frozen next year. So um, I want to look at a generation chart that I put together and I put in the Gen Z book that might be helpful for you to compare and contrast the two gener- or the, the, all the generations today. So in the screen behind me, you see a yellow ribbon across the top. These five generations represent the five generations that are influencing the world today. Uh, sidebar, we actually have seven distinct sociological generations living at the same time. Did you know that? The senior generation that fought in World War II, they're in their 90s. My uncle and aunt are part of the senior generation, all the way to the alphas that are now, you know, six, five, four, four years old. But let's look at these dates real quick. Look with me. See if you can find yourself in this list. And then I want to compare and contrast where you are and where kids are today, okay? So real quick, uh, the builder generation would be the oldest generation still influenced in the world, 1929 to 1945. That would be my mom and dad's generation. Then along came the baby boomers. I'm one of them, 1946 to 64. We were called baby boomers because nine months after World War II was over, the maternity ward filled up, okay? 
This is a biology lesson. There was a boom of babies, okay? 76.4 million kids born in 18 years. That had never happened in America before. After the boomers come the baby busters, 1965 to 82. Uh, Gen X, Gen X is in the room. The first name you were given was Baby Buster because you, the first year of your generation's existence was the public introduction of the birth control pill. So instead of a boom, it was a bust. It was a way, way, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. It was a much smaller population of kids. After uh, the busters or Gen X comes Gen Y or the millennials, basically the people born in the 80s and 90s, and then you have Generation Z, really are the, the, the students, the kids that have only known the 21st century, okay? All right, I wish I had more time to take a survey of who's in the room, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at two categories now that will show you, oh my gosh, based on the years that they grew up, of course they think differently than I do. Make sense? Okay, so real quick, let's look at life paradigm. What's the narrative we bring with us as we move from backpack to briefcase, okay, as we move into a adulthood? Well, I think based on the times that we were shaped the first 20 years of our life, we may have very different paradigms and may explain the conflict at work a little bit. So for the builder generation, I believe their, their life paradigm was just be grateful you have a job. My dad said that to me so many times. My dad was born in 1930. The first decade of his life was the Great Depression. The next five years, World War II. So you know him, don't you? Very frugal, very grateful, very conservative. Save the wrapping paper at Christmas. We'll use it next year, right? You've heard this before. So anyway, that was the builder generation. So just be great. Lots of gratitude, okay? Boomers come along, and I gave the baby boomers. I deserve better because boomers felt entitled to a better life than mom and dad had had. They grew up in a depression. We're growing up in a time of expansion. Shopping malls were popping up. McDonald's was franchising. So it was a much different mindset, much more confidence. Uh, then come the baby busters or Gen Xers. I gave the Xers a life paradigm. Keep it real. Don't tell me this is wonderful. It's not wonderful. So look at the years that the Xers were growing up. You had the Vietnam War, which was extremely controversial. Then you had the Watergate scandal, the OPEC gas crisis. It was a darker time, and the Xers grew up a little more skeptical than, uh, than past generations. Millennials come along, millennials in the room. I gave you the life paradigm. Life is a cafeteria. Now, let me tell you why I said that. It's not, a, it's not an insult. You grew up in a time of digital customization. As you were growing up, the computer was growing up. The, the, the cell phone was growing up. So you are treating life a little bit like a buffet. You know, as, just like you go into a cafeteria, a little bit of roast beef, a little bit of green beans, a little bit of jello, and you're tailoring your meal to your taste buds. These young professionals are making nearly every major decision of their life as if it were a cafeteria. I'll give you some examples. Both of my kids are millennials. They stopped buying compact discs to get their music years ago. Why would they get a CD? There might be six songs they don't like on that CD. They get one song at a time from their own playlist on Spotify or iTunes. True? It's a buffet. They'll make educational decisions this way. They'll graduate from high school and go to three different colleges for one degree. One of them's overseas. They'll make spiritual decisions this way. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Oprah. Shake it together. I've made up my faith, you know? There's no one true source that this God really likes me, you know, that sort of thing. Now, I don't mean to be have, have, just have fun here, but it's just a free agent type of day. 
Now, all of this leads us up to, to Gen Z, this young population that I so believe in. But as I did focus groups with middle school, high school, college students, and just tried to find the threads of commonality, the best phrase I could give them would be this one, I'm coping and hoping. <laughs> I don't know why you find that funny over there, but, but seriously, Think about, think about the time. Would you like to be graduating into a pandemic? I don't think I, don't, I, don't think I would. So they're still hopeful, very idealistic because they're young, but there's just a, a mental health issue today like we've never seen before. Um, in fact, anxiety and depression rates are up, and it's not just young. It's, it's all of us, but it's just a different day. Now, I want you to notice something. I know I'm going rapid here, but look back to the left of that ribbon and go across again. The builder generation was a generation of caution. Baby boomers, generation of confidence. Gen X, back to caution. Millennials, back to confidence. Gen Z, back to caution. It's like these are weird, funky, uncertain, volatile days. And these young people are graduating into it. So listen, I know we need to build grit in them, but we need to start with empathy. Can I say that again? We need to build grit in them. We need to start with empathy. Can I get an amen from the choir on that one? All right, so let's keep going. I want to look at one more just because I thought it would be entertaining. By the way, I have the full chart in the Gen Z book, and this was so fun to just look at and examine research and find the different mindsets we have. Let's look at attitude toward authority. Anybody think that might have changed in 90 years, maybe? So um, go back to the builder generation. It was respect them, right? My mom and dad taught me that you respect the police. Imagine that. You respect the president, even if you didn't vote for him. You just have respect for authority. For the baby boomers, it was replace them. We just thought we'd take over. Thank you very much. For the extras, it was endure them. We're just going to put up with them. Let's go get a Starbucks, okay? For the millennials, it was choose them because remember, life's a cafeteria. So I'm choosing the people I let impart into me. I feel agency, Okay. For Gen Z, because these young people have grown up with a smartphone, I wonder if they were really honest with us, and some were with me, I wonder if their view of authority is, not sure I need them. Now, they do need us leaders in the room, but can you, listen, I just talked to a dad recently, he goes, I'm not having the same conversations with my kids that I had with my dad when I was a kid. I said, you can thank Google, Siri, and Alexa for that, right? Kids are asking smart technology questions, they used to ask mom and dad. So here's what I want you to notice. Look at the vertical column under Gen Z. Under the first box there, I'm coping and hoping, they're screaming out, I need your help. Under the next box below, I don't need your help. On any given day, it's this paradoxical, do you need me or you don't need me? Yes, both. And our job is to have the wisdom to know how do we lead them through where they need to feel autonomy and do it on their own. They can do it. And on the other hand, we need to come alongside of them and say, Okay, anxiety doesn't need to rule us. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. You follow me on that? Okay, so here's the biggest questions that I have. If you, were, if you and I went to Starbucks, you said, Tim, what are the big questions you're asking about the emerging generation Z? Here, here's what it would be. Number one, will they win or lose the battle for mental health? It's gigantic. Uh, some doctors are saying anxiety and depression levels are up 400 and 300%. It's, it's just ridiculous over a generation. Question number two, will the pandemic produce distress or growth? Whenever we hear about stress, I often think about the term PTSD. You've all heard of PTSD. I think we often think, well, you automatically end up with PTSD if you go through a lot of trauma. I don't think that's true. In fact, a, a, a diagnosis of psychologist 
PTG is way more prevalent than PTSD. It's post-traumatic growth. If we guide them well, they could come through this time as if it were a weight room, and these hard times built strength in them. Wouldn't that be cool? The third one is what narrative are they going to carry with them into, into adulthood? That's the one that's most on my mind. Can we help guide, not make it up, it's not pretend, but how can we guide them into a great narrative? I did a lot of research with the Great Depression kids, the kids that grew up in the Great Depression. You know what I found out? The parents of those children way back in the day didn't let them build a victim mindset, even though they were victims of a hard time. They said, we were all in this together. We're going to help each other through this, and we're going to come through on the other side stronger. And boy, my parents' generation was stronger. Wouldn't it be great if as these kids today grow up 20 years later, they go, Thank God for that pandemic. Yeah, it was bad, but we were stronger for it. We're the next greatest generation. Remember that book that Tom Brokaw wrote? Wouldn't that be great if we could do that? Now, real quick, before we get to some solutions and ideas, I want to talk about the challenge of culture. This is something that, I was, that they talked to me about before I came in. They said, do that thing, do that thing that you did. And I did a TED Talks, and, and this is what I did in the TED Talk. So I want to talk to you about the realities of culture today and how we need to be more intentional in leading them than perhaps my, my parents were with me. I think I had good parents, but it was much more um, slower and simpler back in my day when I was growing up. So if you're taking notes or making mental notes, I'm going to give you two columns. In fact, in these two columns, I'm going to talk about our scene today. On the left-hand side, as you can see, I'm going to give you five words that describe our world. You'll immediately say, yep, that's, that's our culture today. But they spell the word scene, so you can remember them. Off to the right-hand side, I'm going to give you five outcomes that I think represent the unintended consequences of that scenario that we didn't necessarily see coming. This will make sense in just a minute, so stay with me. The letter S in scene reminds me our world today is full of speed. Would you agree with that? We want everything faster and fat. We want high-speed internet access and nothing less, right? Oh, my gosh. I wish I could say that I'm a more patient man now at my age than I was 10 years ago. I'm not. I want things faster. I mean, aren't we, are we not a generation that's pacing in front of the microwave oven? This muffin's taking 60 seconds. What's wrong with this thing? You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. But think about it for a minute. If I'm a kid today growing up in this world of speed, it's so easy to assume that slow is bad. I don't like slow. But wouldn't you all agree, even you students, some things happen slowly. It's more like a crock pot than a microwave, right? Careers develop slowly. Marriages develop slowly. So we're going to have to build this counterintuitive, countercultural thought in them. The letter C reminds us our world today is full of convenience. And by the way, don't we all love the modern-day conveniences we enjoy? I sure do. But if I'm growing up a world of such conveniences where everything's a quick click, it's easy to assume that hard is bad. By the way, did you all know the number one phrase that we hear from K-12 educators, from students? This is too hard. The students are saying, this is too hard. And they go, We've been doing this math equation for decades, Johnny. You can do it too. But, you know, it's just a different day. The kids feel agency. And, and all I'm saying is it is hard today, no doubt about it. But it's not too hard. It's in us to get through this. We can do this. In fact, we can not only get through this, we can be better for it. I really believe that. The letter E in speed, or excuse me, in scene. Uh, we live in a world of entertainment. And by the way, now it's in our hands, right? 
When I was growing up, I had to go home to watch Batman on TV, you know, on, on Tuesday nights or whatever. Well, now, come on, let's get honest. Every, every one of us in this room, if you've got five minutes to wait in line, aren't you pulling that smartphone, checking out email, ESPN? Want a little stimuli coming at you. And that's my point. If I grow up today in this world, it's very easy to assume that boring is bad. Now, I will admit to you, I didn't like boring when I was a teenager. But can I tell you what we know today that we didn't know when I was 15, 16 years old? Neuroscientists tell us today that our brains actually need boredom. They say it's in times of boredom that we develop empathy and creativity, two very needful qualities. In fact, think about the opposite. If you're living in a world of noise and clutter, noise and clutter, you got your earbuds in or earphones on, you're not thinking about anybody else. You're trying to survive the day. We need to build young adults that get, do more than survive the day, that are ready to serve others and extend themselves. The letter N, certainly this is not true about every environment today, but by and large in the middle-class American home, our world today is full of nurture. We talked about overfunctioning parents a minute ago. We are into safety and self-esteem and security, and it's a good thing. There's no doubt about it. But sometimes I think our safety measures and our nurturing that we try to do to keep them safe has made them unready for adulthood. I don't know if you know this, but across the playgrounds of America, over the last 20 years, we've yanked the monkey bars and the jungle gyms off the playgrounds because we thought, oh my gosh, Johnny might fall off. Well, he could, but the same motor skills that you develop navigating the monkey bars at seven years old are the ones you're going to need in your 20s as you navigate tough decisions. Have you all... This is random. Have you all seen a photograph of the monkey bars 100 years ago? They're three stories high. I'm not kidding. I've got photographs of them. I mean, no, no wonder we won World War I. We, we'd been to recess, man. You know, it's, it's crazy. So all I'm saying is, in this world of nurture, the, the unwitting message we're sending to young people, risk is bad. Don't take a risk. May I remind everybody in my <laughs> that's hearing my voice. Wasn't our country built off a of risk? This was an entrepreneurial America that we put together, and it wasn't perfect, it still isn't, but we were an experiment that worked because we were willing to take risks. We dare not lose this today. And then the last letter E, I'm going to sound like your grandpa right now, so please forgive me. Our world today everywhere is full of entitlement. I feel like I deserve this because I'm here. I mean, come on, it's all ages, folks. It's not just young people. But if I grow up in a world of entitlement, it's very easy to assume that labor is bad. I shouldn't have to work for this. This should be part of the deal. And I'm thinking, even though all of this makes sense, and by the way, let me add this. I'm not throwing the kids under the bus. We built this world that they're growing up in, right? Come on. So all I'm saying is, if, this is, if there's any kernel of truth in this, what do we need to do to be more intentional about leading to outcomes that we know make them ready for life and ready to follow Jesus. In fact, look at that right-hand column with me just for a second, the one that reads slow, hard, boring, risk, and labor. It dawned on me, aren't those the very elements that build me into a good adult, into a good husband, into a good father, when things are hard and it's a bit of a struggle and it doesn't come right away? I'm a better husband, a better dad, a better leader. So all I'm saying is our marvelous world of 21st century conveniences are stripping away the very elements that would naturally build life skills in them. Do you see what I'm saying? 
So we have to be way, that's my word, intentionality. We need to be way more intentional about building those skill sets that would have come naturally 50 or 60 years ago, but they're not as natural today. So there's a passage of scripture that I absolutely love. In fact, it's become my favorite Old Testament passage found in 1 Chronicles. In the book of 1 Chronicles, the writer is chronicling the tribes and clans of the people of Israel. He's talking about the value that each tribe brings to the country. But when he gets to the tribe of Issachar, he says something very interesting. It's in the 12th chapter, verse 32. He says, and the sons of Issachar were men who, what are those next three words? Read them out loud. Who understood the times. In other words, when we look around the culture today and we go, I don't even get what's going on. These people seem to understand these times. And I love the fact that he didn't stop there. He went on to say, with the knowledge of what the people of Israel should do. That's actually been my hope and my prayer for today. God, help us understand the times and then tell us what we should do. Show us, give us insight into how do we lead this incredible generation coming up now that could be the best we've ever seen if we lead them well. So in the final few minutes we have, I'd like to spend some time on how do we lead them. Again, I don't have all the answers, and we only have a few minutes, so this is not even going to do justice. But I want to share three images with you. Um, you heard them in the interview. Habitudes are simply images that form leadership habits and attitudes. Um, they're a way of thinking, and because they're images, they stick in your head. Most of us are visual learners, um, but it's going to inform you, parents in the room, coaches, teachers, anyone who cares about and leads the emerging generation. So let's do three and I'll wrap up. The first image I wanna give you is one that I really, really love. And I think, well, it's one I wish I would have come up with or learned earlier as my kids were younger, but I simply call it chess and checkers. Chess and checkers. I want you to think about these two games just for a minute, okay? Stay with me. When I open, open up a box of checkers, and then I open up a box of chess. I notice immediately it's the very same game board, right? So I couldn't be tempted to think, oh, must be the same game. Mm-mm. When I play the game of checkers, all my pieces move alike. In fact, they're the same color, same shape, same size. They all move alike. So I treat them all alike. In chess, if I have any hope of winning the game, I have to know what each piece can do. That a knight goes up two and over one, and a bishop goes sideways, and a pawn, and a rook, and a king, and a queen. Only in knowing the strength of each piece do I have any hope of winning. This is a leadership principle. I think mediocre leaders play checkers with their people. They treat them all alike, and they get average performance. Great leaders have learned to play chess in the relationships of their life. And they connect with others at the point of their personality and their strength, and those people flourish. Mrs. Mayo, my fourth grade teacher, played chess with me. She knew what my buttons were and how to push them and how to, and I'm telling you, I'm thankful to this day. My mom played chess with me. I was different than my sisters. So moms and dads in the room, you need to understand, be fair, but don't treat them equally. Be fair, but you have three or four, however many kids you have, different personalities in that home. So I believe there's three kinds of kids and probably lots of combinations thereof. Let me give them to you real quick, see if you can spot them if you're a mom or dad, okay? The first uh, type of kid, the first chess piece, if you will, would be what I call a driver child, okay? You probably need no explanation of what this means, right? They are very driven, they're very strong-willed. In fact, on a good day, you go, hmm, I have a strong-willed son. On a bad day, you go, he is stubborn, 
right? So the driven child or the driver child is one that is very headstrong, okay? Uh, in fact, if you drop hints, like, you know, someone ought to clean your room soon, that's not going to work, okay? You can't drop hints or beat around the bush. You have to be very, very, very clear. In fact, let's just say you've got a five-year-old little driver child. You ought to get down on your knee, eye level, and say, look at me, clean up your room by noon on Friday. Who's going to do it? What time? What day? You kind of need to do that. You don't need to be rude, but you need to be very clear and very direct because you know why you need to be clear and direct? I'll tell you why. Because you're sharing an idea you want them to participate in, but they got, they got 14 better ideas in their head than you got in your head. I know moms that go, my kid wears me out, and he's six. Moms, am I right about this? It's not your, your intellect. You're smarter. You've learned more. You're more mature, maybe. But you're, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. But your child can have a very, very driven spirit. So the driver child is one of your children. Uh, another kind of child would be the diplomat. They're the opposite of the driver child. Our daughter Bethany was a diplomat. This, this kid is very chill, very chill. In fact, in fact, I think Bethany's favorite word or term in middle school is whatever. Whatever, 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 whatever. If I'd say, Bethany, you need, don't you, your room's messy. Don't you want a clean room? Whatever, not really. You know, that's, that, that didn't go so well, you know? So, so with the, here's what I've noticed. The good side about the diplomat, they're so chill. They're, they'll acquiesce their wishes on the playground, whatever. You know, we can do what you want. It's no big deal. It's not a big deal. Nothing's a big deal, okay? And in one sense, that's good, but some things are a big deal, as you well know. So to connect with a diplomat, you don't do it the same way you do a driver. In fact, you talk to the diplomat the same way you did a driver, they're going to be in tears in five minutes. You don't love me. You don't love me. You know, that sort of thing. So with the diplomat, you want to seek cooperation because remember, they love harmony. They're a peacemaker. So saying, Bethany, don't you want a clean room didn't work, but saying, Bethany, I tell you what, this would really help me. You want it? Can you help me? Oh, yeah, I want to help you. It would help me if your room was clean, you know, and, and I'm simplifying here. But the motivation wasn't she wanted it. The motivation was I wanted it and she wants harmony. So again, it's just a different approach. And again, this deserves hours of conversation, but it's a different way of leading. You got to play chess, not checkers. Now, the third kind of kid I think is the most misdiagnosed of all. Um, I guess the best way to describe them is call them the dreamer child. They're the ones that are very much a visionary. They often just are daydreaming or night dreaming. They're, they're dreaming all the time. They're often very creative, not always, but often. Lots of imagination. My son, Jonathan, dreamer child. In fact, lots of creativity, lots of creativity. In fact, here, here's a good illustration. If I told Jonathan to clean his room, he'd go in there. 30 minutes later, I'd go in. Not only was the room not cleaned up, there were four new construction sites going up in the bedroom. Jonathan, what are you doing? Dad, I had an idea, you know? So, so uh, with the dreamer child, because they're so creative and they want to use those creative juices, provide options. It's still a clean room by noon on Friday, but you're saying, now, here's four different options. You get to choose. You get to do it your own way and be creative, but you do need to get to the goal. Now, again, I'm oversimplifying, but what I'm saying is, please, 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 we need to lead these kids in the way they should go. Doesn't that sound like a proverb? Train up the child in the way he should go. And, and that means you're going to need to play chess and not checkers. Now, 
The second image I want to give you is one of my favorites. There's 130 of these things, but this one I think best summarizes what it means to lead well, especially the emerging generation. I simply call it the velvet-covered brick. The velvet-covered brick. Now, see what's on the outside? That's nice, soft, plush, red velvet. Smooth and silky. Feels good when you rub it against your skin. It's just so soft. Inside... That's a brick, okay? Kind of crusty and hard. Doesn't feel very good against your skin. Is that not leadership? Velvet brick. Grace and truth. Tough and tender. There's always two sides to good leadership. And if you're only brick, that doesn't work too well. If you're only velvet, that didn't really work well. Velvet creates good fellowship, but no goals. Brick, you might get to the goal, but you'll steamroll over four people on the way over. It just doesn't work that way. So leaders of the next generation... Here's what I think our kids need us to be. It's two things. And by the way, this is research from UC Berkeley, and I think it's spot on. Number one, they need us to be responsive. That's the velvet. That means we communicate to them in our words and actions. I support you. I got you. I understand you. I've got your back. I'm attentive to you. I care for you. I believe in you. But number two is the other side of the coin. They need us to be responsive and demanding, which essentially says, and because I believe in you, I'm not going to let you drop this on Tuesday because it feels hard. We're going to call you up to the standard. You can do it. It is in you. You see, belief has two sides, doesn't it? It's soft and loving. Thanks for believing me. But if you believe in me, that means we actually have expectations that matches that belief. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? You can't have velvet or brick. It's velvet and brick, responsive and demanding, supportive and tough. So we could talk all day on this, but I just want to get, by the way, leaders at work, they need velvet bricks, especially after a pandemic. They need velvet bricks. I believe in you. I'll, I'll listen to you. I'll hear you. You have a voice, but here's our goal. And if you don't like the goal, can I walk you to the door? You can write that down, okay? All right, let's do one more. The last image I want to give you, I actually want to give you several, but I'm going to take time for one more that I feel like is so good, particularly as your kids move into teen years and young adult years. I simply call it compass or GPS. Compass or GPS. Do you remember the first time you got a compass, or excuse me, I don't know if you remember the first time you got a compass. Do you remember the first time you got that GPS on your phone, that GPS app? Well, remember, it was in our car at first, that big Garmin box. Remember that? It's just, oh, my gosh, there's a box here in the middle of the seat. So I remember first getting the uh, GPS app on my, on my iPhone. I thought, oh, my gosh, I will never get lost the rest of my life. You know, oh, my gosh, was I wrong? I would say within the first three weeks, I was lost as a goose with that app on my phone because I happened to be in some remote place of Saskatchewan, Canada, where there were no names on the roads and they were dirt roads and all there were were landmarks like barns or fences or something. You know what I immediately got on my phone? A compass. Now, you all do know what a compass is, don't you? Okay, so they were developed about a thousand years ago, I understand. But a compass is that instrument that wherever you are, even if you're in uncharted territory, you can look at that compass and see where true north is. So here's the deal. Moms and dads, all through their K-12 years, you've GPSed your kids to death. Turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right, go two miles, turn left. 
Don't forget your backpack. Don't forget the quiz on Friday. Don't, don't forget grandma's birthday on Tuesday. We jeep it. They've learned how to listen and take direction. Have you gotten them ready for the uncharted territory post high school where they may be away and you're not around to say, turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right? And by the way, don't follow them to college, please. Thanks for the nervous laughter. Some parents do. <laughs> what they need from you as they move through adolescence is for you to hand them a compass, meaning I'm not going to tell you what to think. I'm going to tell you how to think. When both of my kids left for college, I had this habitude talk with them. And I remember my son Jonathan one time, it was just a short conversation, but I said, Jonathan, do you have, and that's all I could get out of my mouth. He goes, Dad, I got my compass. So he went from Atlanta to LA, but inside, he wasn't perfect, but he had a way of, I know how to make good decisions. I know how to get to the right goal here. So let me give you real quick the last application or balancing act. I think as kids mature, they need equal doses of autonomy and responsibility. These always go together. Now, they're going to ask for more autonomy. Most kids going through teenage years, am I right about this? They're asking for more autonomy. They, they get to stay out till midnight. How come you make me go in at 11 o'clock? You know, that sort of thing, okay? And you have to say, we're not the Johnsons. I'm so sorry. You know, that sort of thing. Autonomy is natural. You need to give them more autonomy. Slowly but surely, through their years, they should have more freedom, more liberty, more autonomy to make decisions and to rise or fall with those decisions. But equal with that is responsibility. So here's a good illustration. When Jonathan, my son, first got his driver's license, he did get a license at 16, not 12. Um, Jonathan didn't get a car right away. We, we, we were working out a deal how he would, you know, have some skin in the game. So the first year and a half or so, he had to drive the family car, one of the cars that didn't belong to him. So if he was on Friday night, if he'd say, hey, I want to go out with my friend Ben and, you know, can I have the car keys? Giving him the car keys would be an, an element of autonomy, right? So I would say something like, here's the keys, fill up the tank with gas. Fill up the tank with gas, I can't believe you make me do that. And I would say, or you can make a car payment, either one, which, which would you like, you know? Now, I'm having fun with you. He would roll his eyes and we'd both laugh, but the point was he knew I won't get autonomy without responsibility and vice versa. Anytime I have a responsibility, I'm gonna get some liberty with that responsibility. People who get all autonomy and no responsibility, we create brats, and our country needs no more brats. True? But if they get all responsibility and no autonomy, we have unready people for what it means to be alive and adult. So I'm simply saying to you, we've got to do both, and in doing so, we give them a rite of passage into adulthood. So let me close with a story. I mentioned when Carlos was interviewing me that we, uh, my wife and I decided to create some rites of passages for our children. Many of you must do the same thing. But when the 12th or 13th year comes along, I think kids need to know I'm moving into a new stage. My brain development is different. My formation bodily and emotionally and socially is different. So Bethany is our firstborn. I remember sitting down when she was in the eighth grade with her at the kitchen table at nine o'clock. And I said, Bethany, I want to, with you tonight, create a rite of passage that will last over this next year. She said, what's that? And I explained it. How many cultures around the world have rites of passages that are doorways, or shall I say gateways, into, into adulthood? Well, that night, here's what we did together. We picked six women 
that would be one-day mentors for her that next year. Women that her mother and I thought were really wonderful models, role models, but that she thought were really cool, cool people. Well, it didn't take us 10 minutes to mutually come up with six names. And then I called them all up over the next week, and I would say, hey, I got a crazy question. Would you pick a day over this next year and spend the day with Bethany? Let her be with you. In fact, if you go to work, take her to work. Put her to work if you want to. If you stay at home, keep her at home. But we just want her to be able to watch you live your life that day because we so admire how you live your life, and we just want her to see other models of healthy, well-adjusted adults. I said, over the course of the day, the only thing I ask is, would you just share one life message with our daughter, Bethany? A message you wish you would have gotten when you were 13 and never got it. Well, these ladies went beyond my wildest imagination. Sarah was the first one. Sarah is a nurse in the maternity ward, or she was at the time. She took Bethany into the maternity ward at the hospital. Our little eighth grade girl was helping women give birth to babies between nine and three that day. Kind of scares me thinking about it. And she saw everything, C-section, natural birth, she saw it all. They, she, they treat her like an intern. She's handed them the scalpel and the scissors and so forth. And then at three o'clock, Sarah takes her out of the maternity ward into another room in the hospital where Bethany sat in a class that Sarah was teaching for unwed mothers. Teenage girls that were pregnant and probably didn't want to be. That was very sobering again. And then over dinner that night, do you know what Sarah's life message was for our daughter? It was about handling your sexuality wisely. And boy, did that message ring loud and clear that day. Much better than my lecture on the subject. Holly was another one. Holly took Bethany downtown Atlanta, Georgia. She worked in the projects all day long, handing out blankets and food and painting the cheeks of little kids. Betsy was another one. Betsy's a flight attendant with Delta Airlines. She got a buddy pass, flew Bethany up to New York City for the day. Talking about making your life an adventure, not just a safety, risk-free, predictable thing. It was just amazing. I didn't script any of them, but I watched my little girl grow up. And that year, I think I saw her move with her friends from a thermometer to a thermostat, where she kind of set the temperature. It was amazing. At the end, all of them came over to the house the ladies, that is. We had a dinner for them. And then it was the climax of our year. All the ladies went into our family room and sat in chairs and sofa. Bethany set up a chair in the middle of the room and I coached her, but she did it. One by one, she sat in the middle of that room and read a personal letter to each one of these ladies. And it was, um, it was emotional. Dear Miss Holly, this is what I learned from you. This is how my life changed. Dear Miss Betsy, dear Miss Sandra, this is what I learned from you. This is how my life changed. It was crazy. When it was all over, I stood up and I tried to explain the rite of passage thing. And I couldn't. I was just, I was just unable to. But the ladies did need me to. They all got up from their sofa and chairs and knelt down on the carpet. And looking up at our little blonde hair, blue eyed little girl, they just gave, they just spoke words of blessing, words of affirmation. Bethany, you're going to be a great leader, I can tell. Bethany, you're going to be a great wife if you choose to be. Bethany, you're going to be a great mom if you choose to be. It was 
a rite of passage. And not everything was perfect after that day, but I share this with you only because in your own way, can I encourage you, be more intentional. Create rites of passages along the way, whatever it is. You don't have to spend a lot of money, but spend the time and the energy because our kids deserve it. One last bit to the story. Jonathan, you know little brothers are watching everything that their older siblings do. So Jonathan was nine years old and he's sitting off in the corner of the room watching this final time of discussion and so forth. So that night I tucked him into bed as I pulled up the covers, I was gonna pray with him, pulled up the covers, he looked at me and said, Dad, I've already started thinking about the guys I want to mentor me, you know. I said, all right, we're gonna do it. And we did it in four years. So um, I wanna pray with you. It's been so rich to be with you today, but here's the question I wanna leave you with. How will you be more intentional as you lead the next generation in whatever your role is? How can you create those rites of passages experience uh, for them? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just ask you today to, um, to do something that we can't conjure up ourselves, uh, either cognitively or emotionally. Whether we are the emerging generation or we have emerged and we're now leading others, give us the insight to know what we should do. Uh, we, need your, we need your power and strength. We need your clarity. We're so fuzzy these days, God, on what the future looks like. Give us your clarity. And I just put these people, God, in your hands. Have your way. Finish the work you've begun. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.